Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from cloudy and cool Portland. And Luke Diebold. Hello from very early Australia. It's like 3.50 a.m. over here. <laughs> Thank you for joining us so early. Definitely appreciate having you here. Great. Today is a panelist episode. It's just the three of us. So we are going to be talking about ourselves a bit and some of the things that we went through as developers that we wish we had known better ways of doing or things we didn't know and we just wish we had. And hopefully we'll be able to provide some guidance and suggestions to developers earlier on in their careers for things that they can pick up now and be even better developers later on in life. So well, they can be better developers now too. I mean, ideally. <laughs> they don't have to wait till they're later on in life to become better developers, just saying. Definitely not plateau for three years and then suddenly, I'm the best. Gonna be the best today. Yeah, that's right, it's the goal. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So Luke, let's start with you. Is there anything in your career that you wish you had known earlier on or something that you'd missed until recently? What's what's something that you wish you had discovered earlier? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's something that I've totally messed up recently. It's one of those things that I thought was really, really cool. That turned out to be a massive mistake in hindsight. And I guess I can call this too much magic can be bad, where if you're doing too much magic behind the scenes with your code, then things like your editor and other people can have no idea what's going on. And so one thing I did was with, think, with frameworks like Quasar and Beautify, um, a lot of you might know that you've got the option to auto import components. And so, you know, out of the box with Quasar, I can say Q-import. I don't have to do any imports or anything like that. It's magically going to do it for me behind the scenes. And it's wonderful. So it won't include the whole library. It will automatically pick up what components I'm using and then import them for me. And so when I first found out about this, I'm just like, ah, this is so cool. I want to do this for my own components because, you know, I've got my own component library. Let's see if I can do it for my own stuff. And so for my base components, for example, I've got capital B before my components so I can easily identify them. So for example, capital B import or capital B select, you know, I got components set up in this way. And so I thought, well, how about I just use auto import for those? And so I found this plugin online that allows me to do basically the same thing. So whenever I say like capital B import, it will automatically notice that and add the import statement to the file for me when it's compiled. And so this cleaned up all of my, my files like crazy. All of a sudden, I don't have to do, I'm doing virtually no import statements for things like base components. And we've got model components as well. And like all of this is automatically importing for us. The problem with this though is... First of all, it's hard for the IDE, for your, for your text editor, whatever you want to call it, to pick this up. And so it doesn't know 
that it doesn't know where my components are coming from so easily anymore. And there are some ways to work around this, but it kind of just adds a whole bunch of complexity to your code base. So if you want to have like click through for your components and stuff like that, you have to do a whole bunch of extra work. And all of a sudden this magic isn't so magical anymore. And another big problem is there's actually a few ways to import a component. So you can import a component in such a way that it will only be fetched when it's used. If you've got sort of Webpack set up properly, which is really cool, like an awesome feature. Or you can import a component in such a way where it's imported at runtime, which can have its own benefits. And all of a sudden, you lose that flexibility if you're automatically importing all of your components. And so, yeah, that was kind of a huge mistake, I think, that I made that was just coming back to bite me now that somebody else is on the team. Because they're like, well, what's going on here? And they don't get that magic from the ID, which would be really nice. Yeah. And, oh gosh, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but like I did, actually did the same thing with models as well, where I can say this dot dollar sign M and then the name of a model that I want to pull out. So for example, if I wanted to access the user model, I could say within a view component, this dot dollar sign M user and easily access any model within my application and kind of a lot of you are probably realizing the repercussions for this can be really bad. The same thing, you lose that beautiful IDE support, but it's still kind of nice at the same time though. So for like smaller projects to be able to say, just get me all of my users, to be able to access a user model and like just fetch all of those users inside your template super easily was really nice. But it's one of those things that's come back to bitten me. You get you get zero auto completion with auto completion without like a whole bunch of extra efforts. So I guess the thing I learned here and that I would advise people based on my based on my experience with this is a bit of magic can be really nice, but there's a reason that a lot of stuff isn't magical. And you need to have like some pretty amazing foresight and some pretty deep understanding of systems be able to do, safely do a lot of these sort of magical things. Yeah. And so especially around auto importing stuff, I would recommend that maybe maybe for your fun projects on the side. However, for larger projects at work, yeah, maybe keep things a little bit more streamlined. That's kind of the um the lesson that I learned there. Yeah, I think that's a fine line, especially as we're developers and we get to play with this this cool technology that lets us build applications or websites or whatever. And we just want to be on you want to use the magic. You want to make your own magic as opposed to just using what, for example, like you were saying, either Quasar or Nuxt has its component auto-import. You want to be able to do that yourself and understand it, which is great. But then you run into the technical reasons that lead us to actually using these other frameworks and tools that have solved the problem for us. Yeah, yeah, totally. And with, with a framework like that, it's easy to add like, a bit of TypeScript to get that magic, I guess. Whereas adding TypeScript, I don't really know what it is. I think they're like definition files or something. (laughs) Doing that yourself, doing that yourself for every single component, it's like, well, okay, that's getting a little bit much here. Definitely, yeah. I think that's that's one thing that I, when I started in programming, I was just using mostly HTML and CSS. Everything was very explicit. When I started exploring PHP, it was without frameworks. So again, everything was extremely explicit and very, very procedural. And it wasn't until I started exploring this the the modern frameworks that we have that I came across this idea of convention versus configuration. And every time I looked at it, at least at first, it was like, configuration. Why why am I going to rely on something that's that's magical, that's doing something? I want to understand it. I want to know what's going on and, and be able to replicate it myself. But then as you start playing with the magical things, like stepping outside of Vue for a moment, when I was using Java 
and I was using uh, decorators, whatever they're called in in Java, for using Spring Boot when I was just setting up controllers. That's all magical. And Ruby on Rails, it's there's so much magic in Ruby on Rails because it's all based on this convention. And I think, especially early in the career, configuration is a much safer way to go because you're able to see it, you're able to understand it. And then once you start getting a little beyond the early phases of learning a technology, then you can start exploring the, the convention stuff with an understanding of where it came from and why you're doing it that way. Nothing against people that go with Ruby on Rails or Java or any of those convention-first tools, but I, I think it's really nice to be able to come at it from a configuration approach and just understand everything that's going on. Yeah, sure. It's just one of those spectrums, isn't it? Where if, if you don't you don't add a little bit of convention, then it slows you down dramatically. Like yeah, a classic example of this is we use something called Laravel Orion that basically on the back end is automatically going to create APIs for us in a very consistent way, but you can tap into it and change the way it responds, for example. But the fact that we can make a model and can and have all of our index stores, updates, deletes, batch updates, batch deletes, and have all of that done for us behind the scenes with no extra work from us. And knowing that that API is it's going to be the same everywhere is really, really handy. Like that is a really powerful convention that allows us to write way less code. And it means that when we onboard somebody new, we can be like, this is how you do an API. This is our way of doing an API. And we know that if they follow that pattern, it's going to work. But yeah, you're, you're totally right in that. If you go too far over on this end of the spectrum where you're trying to create something that writes itself, you know, it starts to reach a point where unless you put a lot of time into it, it gets, it's, it's sort of hard to walk that line between convention and figure, configuration sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Steve? Convention and configuration debate. I can't say that's one I've waded into too much. Dive in, the water's warm. Right. You know, I, I guess it depends on, on the case, the use case. Having preset configuration first up, I think, makes it easier. Obviously, you know, your source control and, and manage like that as compared to certain ways of doing things. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not providing a lot of input <laughs> into this one, unfortunately. Not wedded to, to either particular approach, shall we say. I tend to go by uh, what's appropriate for the project. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's something that, I think it's also important to learn early in a career is as as best you can, because obviously when you're starting out as a developer, you don't have all of that experience. But I think it's something important to learn is when to use what tools and when to use what paradigms for building an application. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. What's So Steve, what is something that you wish you had learned earlier on in your career that has impacted you or it made a huge benefit when, once you did find it. So I don't know if there's necessarily one. Well, there's a couple of ways that I can point to, but I guess I would say being more aware of alternate tools. And Chuck and I talked about this when I did my first, you know, my JavaScript story with him back a couple of years ago. But, you know, I first started out, they say invention, was it mother? Necessity is the motherhood of invention or however you mutilate that phrase. Basically, no, needing to know something is how things get invented. And in my case, it was needing to know how to do a, a website for a sports association that I was involved with at the time, back in the days of the first version of Front Page and all its horrible graphics. And then 
people learning PHP and MySQL and getting into the backend web development and so on. So in my particular case, like I said, I started with backend server side PHP development and CSS design implementation, even, even some JavaScript was stuff I started to learn, but I just decided, no, I'm going to be a, a backend developer. And so I tended to focus back in those days when, and when I first got into Drupal, both on my own. And then once I got hired as a developer, you, it was very different than now because you pretty much defined yourself as either like one of three ways, I guess you had, you were a backend developer, you were a front-end developer, or you were a site builder where your site builder is basically a non-developer person who just uses the CMS tools to put together a site. And front-end was considered where your themers, they're the ones that applied the CSS to the themes, to the templates with PHP template and CSS. And this is before any of your CSS frameworks, before Twitter bootstrap, which is what it originally was, and, and some of those other frameworks. And so I was like, at the time, the demand for Drupal was going really strong and and I, there was no shortage of jobs for Drupal developers. And so I just sort of stayed focused on the back end. And so as the web ecosystem has exploded and now you have all the different things you can glue together to create a stack, you know, you started out with the mean stack, Mongo, Express, Angular, Node as one of the first acronyms that I can ever recall using. Oh, I take that back. Then you had, and the first one I was involved with was LAMP, Linux, yeah, Apache, MySQL, PHP, right? And that was sort of the standard for a while of Drupal and especially WordPress, the dominant CMS, uh, blogging CMS at least. And so when I started looking at JavaScript around, I think it was about 2016, it was only because it had worked its way into the Drupal world in terms of AngularJS, so the very first version of Angular. And there was a well-known project in the Drupal community where they had integrated Angular with Drupal and some other stuff to for weather.com. And so I'm looking around as I get into Angular and I'm seeing all the other tools. And then I start hearing about Node.js and I'm really like, well, shoot, Node's been out for a while. wonder how I never saw this. And I'm realizing it's probably because I was just so nearly focused on what I was doing and where I was going. And so I did get into JavaScript for a while. I still have this book. Oh my God, it's right here. I'll show you guys in the camera just so you can see. It's like Bookzilla. This one. Oh, I know those. Yeah, the rocks. Remember the rocks publishing with all the red, yeah, red uh, covers. So yeah, I still have one written by a guy named Paul Wilton. I think he's English or something, if I remember correctly. It's got to be at least I don't know three inches high. <laughs> and I started to learn JavaScript, and it was pretty painful because it's before jQuery, before any of those, you know, helper libraries. So everything was dry JavaScript, and and never really followed it up. And I really wished I had. But then also like I said, working in enterprise level stuff where you tend to be sort of a, you're in a particular niche, you're a backend server guy, you're a friend in person, wherever, where you don't really have the capability to do stuff across all portions of the application. I didn't really focus on the, on the CSS and just design and, and, and theming and, you know, JavaScript, you know, CSS classes and CSS is a beast, even, especially back then, CSS2, CSS3. I still have a, one of the O'Reilly books on CSS2, I think. Might be able to sell it on eBay as a as a antique, but yeah, I never really got into it too much as focus. So I guess the point that I'm going on and on about is wishing that I had become more fully developed as a web developer. You know what we the phrase we use now is full stack, 
And so now with a lot of the advances that have been made in CSS, you know, you got grid, you got Flexbox, you got your different uh, frameworks ranging from Bootstrap to Bulma to now Tailwind with its utility classes. It's, it's, and things like border radius. I still have nightmares about trying to make rounded corners. Yes. Back in the early 2000s with your little images that you had, to, corner images that you had to position just right with CSS. And yep. Well, yes, I tried that once and said I won't do that again. So yeah, there's a lot more tools out there. And I think the thing, it was interesting, again, going back to the Drupal world, there was a really well-known post by a guy who was a pretty prominent in the world, in the Drupal world, and he talked about getting off the island. And the the context at the time was that, you know, when you're dealing with, with PHP stuff, Drupal was very Drupal-y. In other words, everything was a Drupal convention. If you came in and wanted to learn how to do Drupal, you had to learn the Drupal way of writing PHP. It was very functional, not very object-oriented. Whereas coming into, say, another project that was based on, say, Symphony or Laravel or something like that, if you knew those, it made it easier for you to get in. And so there was a big push to try to do that. And that happened quite extensively with Drupal 8 with using Symphony 2 and Guzzle and Twig for templating and a lot of off-the-shelf you know, open-source projects that you sort of piece together as compared to rewriting or reinventing the wheel from a Drupal standpoint. So that was really good. But that was what sort of got me and a lot of people thinking as this guy wrote this post, his name is Larry Garfield. And every post say, hey, get out and learn other stuff. Don't just focus on Drupal. There's a lot of other things out there to learn. Get out there and learn them, you know, and, and become more well-rounded. And so I think that's what I did. And that's what a lot of people started to do. Now, the, the counterpoint to that, obviously, is an oft-discussed subject, you know, in the world of JavaScript or in the world of web development as a whole is now you're drinking from a fire hose. The JavaScript fatigue was a well-known term for a while when it seemed like every other day there was some sort of new framework coming out, whether it's JavaScript framework or maybe Node, you know, a Node implementation or something. It was just always there and there's always so much to learn. And so there's a balance to be struck in learning something and getting good at it and while keeping your eyes open on other things and implementing them as necessary as compared to always jumping on the next big thing. Oh man. This new tool is out. This is cool. Let's rewrite our entire stack in this or redo my whole website in this. But it's cool, you know, if you want to play around with your own little local site, side projects that devs are well known to have, the million unfinished side projects. So, but yeah, there's there's a balance to be struck. And there's a there's a really funny blog post I saw. I think I saw it in one of the changelog weekly newsletters. And it was a, a generic post that this guy wrote that sort of a, a mimic of all the different posts that, that whether it's startups or other established companies, here, we changed our whole stack and this is why. And it was so funny because it was so true. <laughs> we wrote our entire stack because, you know, we changed this because of this and this and, you know, learning this. It was awesome. I have to find it. So all that rambling, you know, to say, I wish I had kept my eyes open for other things and started to learn other th- things instead of just saying, solely focused on where I was because it was paying the bills that time and it didn't seem like there was any end in insight for that particular development path. Man, I feel like every team needs needs someone with experience to basically say, you're going off the rails here with all of these new ideas. Just keep working on what's working. Yeah. Lindsay and I, you know, Lindsay and I can sympathize yeah. with this. And I think I was more in this world than he was, but when we both worked at what is now Daimler, 
they had a large, large portion of their applications that were based on a mainframe. I think it was an IBM 3270, if I remember right. But from a development standpoint, my particular position, I had to deal with that quite extensively. And if you've ever written mainframe code, it has to be one of the most painful things you can do as a software developer. It's, it's, oh, it's just painful. You know, in the meantime, I'm starting to get into web development and I'm looking at how easy it is to do stuff, you know, much quicker in a web. I'm like, why? Which is part of the reason I ended up leaving there. <laughs> I got tired of dealing with that mainframe. But the point is probably the reason that they stayed with it is because it worked. It was stable. The mainframe never went down. I don't ever recall issues of it crashing. And I've heard of, you know, read other people say the same thing. If it ain't broke and it's doing what you need, why fix it? Obviously, you're going to get to a point, probably at some point, where you, where a technology is so old that you don't have anybody that knows how to use it or program in it. Classic case that I can remember was back when COVID hit last year and you had some serious issues that a lot of people had with their uh, state unemployment insurance systems that were sold there written in COBOL and states were having problems finding COBOL developers because there really wasn't uh, anybody yeah. around that wrote in COBOL anymore. So when you start running issues like that, then you got, okay, maybe we need to upgrade just a little bit. I was at, when I went to another company, it was a huge international, multinational corporation based up in Washington. And the project that I was on was taking some of their internal tools and even their external website and converting it to something newer because it was using something like some very old Microsoft tools that they did not even support anymore in terms of old versions of SQL Server. And I think CMS 2000, if I remember correctly, was an old CMS that they had. And, you know, it was held together by string and, and Band-Aids and, and chewing gum. And so in those cases, yeah, you definitely, you sort of need to upgrade or you're going to be, when your whole system crashes, you don't have any support, then you're in a world of hurt. So, but that's compared to, hey, we just redid our whole stack in Docker two years ago. And now we need to upgrade to something else that's even better than Docker. And, and well, maybe not so much. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, that actually raises another thing that I think that I think a lot of us learn, which is, oh, I've lost my train of thought now. It's easy to happen when I get rambling, sorry. No, man, okay, it'll come back to me in a second, but you, you said something that really triggered, oh, okay, yeah, that was it. Upgrading your current technologies. That's a lesson I wish I learned much earlier on. So you see people on forums often in um, the Quasar world, in the Laravel world. You know, I can only speak to these worlds that I know of where people are using much older technologies, um, much older versions of the technology. And it just slowly becomes like more and more redundant. And it also gets harder and harder to upgrade. And on top of that, the more you don't upgrade, the more you kind of put it off, the may, I, th I feel like at least for me, the more my brain says, I can do this later. It's like that classic story of putting the clothes on the line. Um, maybe this is just an Australian story where you like, your mom says, can you put the clothes on the line? And you say, yeah, mom, I'll do it later. And, and mom knows that means that it is not going to get done. If you say you're going to do it later, it is not going to happen. And it's the same kind of thing in the, like the web dev world. Every time you say, I'm going to do this later, and I guess that's kind of another lesson. If you catch yourself saying, I'll do this later over and over again, and it's kind of an important task, 
then that should be a red flag, at least for me, because it usually means, Luke, if you keep putting this off, it probably means you're never going to do it until it becomes a disaster. I've run into issues like that where, you know, I can, I can put off that that fix or I can put, you know, I'll just put it to do here and I'll come back to it later. I won't forget. And eventually if you keep doing that, you just have a pile of to-dos and you're never going to have time to do them because you have to do them later. Yes. Oh gosh, the classic to-do list. We still get a trolley board at work that's now pretty much become redundant because it's so long. And that's one of the things I think we learned early on. It was like, you get, we were getting every idea down onto a Trello list, Trello to-do list. But if that list gets too long and it becomes unprioritized and untouched, then it becomes useless. It basically becomes a wish list as opposed to a to-do list. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of jokes about you know, developers putting things on the backlog, really just meaning developers will never do that thing. Yeah. Like that fits in. I think one of the things I regret earlier in my in my dev career, I started learning programming in like middle school and high school. I got into HTML and CSS, just poured through the books. I just absorbed it all, and I worked on side projects, got people coming to my website, all that all that fun stuff. Eventually, I started touching PHP, and that was great. Started to get some some actual programming involved in the programming, and I you know occasionally I think you know maybe I can turn this into a career. This was the two thousands. I'll, I'll just see what see what happens. Maybe I can become a, a web developer or designer or whatever they called it at the time. And so I, I went to college and I started taking CS courses. And one of the first pro, one of the first classes I did was in C which is a terrible language, and I hate it. I absolutely hate CSS. That I am on record now. It just C++ does not work. Or CSS. C CSS is great. But you just said you hate CSS. Oh no, we'll have to take that off the record. I love CSS. I hate C++ and I hate that they're close together. No, C- <laughs> yeah. Edit that C- out, woo! <laughs> no editing, no editing. We're not editing that one. Another fun thing to learn is not making mistakes on live recordings. <laughs> no, I, I just, I could not wrap my head around C++. Like I, I kept thinking, oh, this is making sense now. I'm getting good at this. I can do C out and C in, and I understand all of this and doing loops and everything, whatever. At the end of the course, I had like a C because I just kept running into issues that I, that did not make sense. And I was like, oh, I just struggled so hard and I could not succeed at this language. And you didn't get a C++ on the class? I did not get a C++. Oh. It was a straight Damn, C. You stole it. Come no on, object you, had orientation. See, you had to see that setup. I mean, as soon as he said that, <laughs> that was just, he teed that up. I couldn't. couldn't yeah, it was there by. for you. <laughs> No, it, it just wasn't making sense. So I was like, eh, maybe not. Set it aside. A couple of years later, went back to college. I, I, took a, I took a break from college as well. So I went back to college and was like, okay, let's try this again. Take the, the C++ course. And it's just going terrible. It's just the slog. And I'm just not understanding it. It's not making sense. And I come out of that second time of learning C++ thinking, I'm not a developer. This isn't for me. Mm. And... So I move on and I go into IT administration, network administration, and I get CompTIA certified and start having a, a career path in that direction where I'm going to be managing servers and maybe mainframes, ruining Steve's day with uh, having to code in bad programming languages. Um, you don't ruin just, my day as long as I don't have to program it. Oh, that's fair. But, you know, having to, you know, I was just thinking about the, the hardware side, maintaining Windows and servers and all of that stuff. And over that time, like including in the gap, I was writing PHP. Like I was making a CMS. I made a small PHP app just for fun. So I, I knew how to program. I knew how to do development. I just, that one language didn't make sense to me. 
And I think what I wish I had known earlier in my career is not all languages are the same and not all programming paradigms are the same. If you're not good at one, that doesn't mean you're not good at all of it. I mean, there are people that aren't that don't like CSS and there are people that aren't good at JavaScript and that's fine. That doesn't mean you can't be a programmer. It just means that's not necessarily the tool for you. If you want to be a programmer, if that's something that interests you, find the tool that works. PHP was all right for me when I was getting started. I mean, I was able to do some things, but it wasn't really until I got into JavaScript that everything started to make sense. And by then I'd looked at PHP, I'd looked at C Sharp. But once I started playing with JavaScript, it was like, oh, this is the thing that makes sense. I can make web apps. Mm -hmm. I can do everything. And that was, that was while I was in the middle of a programming bootcamp that was focusing on C-sharp, barely touched JavaScript, like a little bit of jQuery. And I was just like, I'm going to go learn Node, and I'm going to go learn Angular and React and Vue. I don't know what the difference is, but apparently they're important. And just learn all the things JavaScript. And that's just what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do JavaScript all the time because it made sense. And it was something that I could use to actually start a development career, which is a lot more fun for me than, than IT administration. IT is great. Computers are great. But making the, the programs that run on all of those systems is so much fun for me. And if I had just thought every programming language was like C++, I never would have known this. Yeah, that's a great story. It's kind of, I, th I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn is that with persistence, you can learn to do something. You can learn to be a coder if you, if you keep at it. Do you think that there's parts of C++ that kind of then trickled in that, to make it easier for you to learn these other languages, like to learn... PHP and to learn JavaScript? I think partially, yes, just because C++ has so many roots in modern programming. I mean, the, the basic example would be a for loop. Every programming language based off of C uses the same kind of for loop. And it's really nice to work with because it's kind of like romance languages. They all sound the same if you go in between them. And C and C++ are like the Latin equivalent. So well, Plus, I mean, they you use those to write other languages. I mean, what's PHP initially created in? That's true. C, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So I think yes, in the sense that by by understanding C++, I'm I'm able to look at other languages and be like, okay, that's that's where that piece came from. That's where this came from. If this is a C derivative language, I can expect X, Y, and Z in it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work the other way. I've tried going back to C++. I was able to write something as I was finishing up my bachelor's degree in C++, and it was okay. But it's still not something that my brain just inherently works with. It doesn't make immediate sense to me. So it's like translating between multiple languages to try and get your point across. Yeah, cool. Awesome. I did not know that story about you, that it started with C++. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the fun things about being a developer too, is we all have our own different stories and how we got to where we are today. I mean, in, in just this podcast, I'm including the listener because I'm assuming the listener uses Vue. We have four developers minimum who are who are view developers, and each of us came from a different point. We all have our own roads that we took to get here. So I think it's important that we share those stories with each other so we can we can see the hurdles that we came through and the different paths that we took. And then we can have all of those different perspectives as we're as we're working on code today. Yeah, totally. It kind of makes me think, like, I always would have said that my original language that I learned was probably like JavaScript. That's kind of the first thing I, I think that I started learning. Well, I actually started with something called Const uh, the Games Factory which is kind of like a oh, yeah. drag games creator. Love and I that. accidentally, I accidentally learned how to be a developer. I actually remember going to, I remember at school, I'd spent years creating games with the games factory. And I had no idea that I was coding. 
even though it was click drag, there was all, I was learning stuff like if statements and, you know, uh, loops and how to call different functions, all that kind of stuff, grouping your code. And I remember going to the teacher at school in year 11, and I don't know what it's like in other places around the world, but we've got year 11 and 12, and then you're out of school. And in, and in, year, in year 11, I went to the, the teacher and said, I'd really like to do coding. I, like I want to do the, the coding subject. And they said to me, well, you kind of need to have like background knowledge of code. You need to have done it in like year nine or 10 to have an understanding of these concepts. It's probably a little bit late for you to learn how to code. And then I realized later on, like in late year 12, just before I was finishing up school, I saw somebody who had a coding book. And I remember flicking through it because I was interested in it and thinking like, oh my gosh, I know all of these concepts. I've accidentally like learned all of these concepts through the games factory. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know how I got onto that, but. Well, it's sort of like the karate kid learned karate through washing and painting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the place (laughs) I was going with this though. Yeah. Like you learn it through something else. But when I really think about it, the first language I really learned was music. You know, I talked about this in the, the Quasar podcast where, I learned solfege, which is kind of the language of music, a way that you can convert the sounds you hear into music that you can write down and you can use it to start improvising. And then, you know, learning how to apply these concepts to piano because I was a, I was a horrible pianist and for some reason they let me in at university and I was by far the worst pianist there. No joke, my piano teacher actually said to me, and this is a quote, you are the worst pianist here by far. He actually said that. He was a total Ouch. jerk. <laughs> That's a way to build confidence. Yeah. Oh, but like just to express like how bad I was at piano at the time, but that kind of created a fire in me and I learned the art of learning. And that's the other thing that I want to, I want to bring up now that one of the best lessons I ever learned in my life is that I can learn anything. And when you truly, like when you truly know that and when you under, when you actually understand the intricacies of that statement, that you really can learn anything, all you need is the right guidance and enough time. And I, I taught myself this through piano, that there is no challenge that, that I can't conquer with enough time and effort. Like everybody around me was like so much better than me. And they'd all been playing since they were like six, seven, eight years old. And frankly, a lot of them were just like more talented me than me. But if you keep at it and keep being like persistent and getting 1% better every single day, um, once, once you learn that you can, you can get competent at something with enough time and persistence, like that's a lesson that I wish I learned as a child. I wish that lesson was instilled into me as a child because then when I got to the programming world, it's this huge overwhelming thing that I didn't really understand. I didn't start learning really learning to code until I was frankly out of university. You know, I'd done stuff with the games factory, but I didn't actually learn to code until the age of like 23 or 24 even. But that lesson that there is nothing you can't learn um, if you have the right guidance and persistence, it's then just a matter of time. And so, you know, I sat down, I learned every single day a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And now I feel like I can, I'm a coder. Like, I feel like I can say that with confidence that I really can write code. So to me, that's like the big overarching lesson of my life up until this point is that you truly can learn anything. And so a lot of you that are listening to this, if you're, if you're older and you feel like you don't have time to learn or you don't feel like you're naturally talented enough to learn how to code, it's not as relevant as you think. It's just a matter of time and persistence and having the right guidance. I completely agree with that. If, I mean, with any of the skills that I've learned, not just programming, but if, if you don't have the, the perseverance and you don't 
think that you can learn, then you're not, you're probably not going to get there. But if you put in that time, you put in that effort to learn how to learn, like you were saying, Luke, you can learn it. You can achieve whatever it is you're wanting to achieve in that, in that field. And the nice thing about programming is that there is an entire dev community backing you. So if you say, I want to learn how to program JavaScript, there's an entire community of developers out there that will say, yes, go for it. We'll help you. We'll be here. You can ask them questions. You can talk to them on Twitter. You can talk to the, the repository managers on GitHub, uh, especially with GitHub discussions coming out more and more. And there's, there's just so many ways, if you want to get into programming, to, to have the support of the community. And I think that's what I would recommend for anyone trying to get in now to, to have a leg up is be active in the community. Either jump on Twitter or where or wherever you find a, com a community of programmers, uh, Discord. There's a lot of them. Just jump in, start talking, start asking questions. That's that's going to be the best way to to learn and grow as a developer, as well as just an individual and just become a better person. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I was really surprised when I started getting more active in the community. Community, just how true that is, and how willing everybody is to help you. Like I think sometimes especially with social media, we get this idea that there's just a whole bunch of angry people out there in the world. But you, if you jump onto like Discord, if I jump onto Discord in the Quasar community and ask a question, especially if it's a newbie question, especially like questions that are seemingly really obvious, people are just like, yes, an opportunity to help somebody with this problem and to share my knowledge. Like coders love helping people, sharing their knowledge and helping people avoid mistakes that they themselves have made. It's like, it is so much fun. And that's probably true in every field. There's, there's almost nothing as fun as saying, oh, here's a mistake I made and here's how you can avoid it. So yeah, totally jumping into the community and asking questions, even if you feel like they're quote unquote stupid questions, there are no stupid questions. Like, yeah, 100% agree on that one, Lindsay. Any final thoughts, Steve, before we wrap up? You don't want to get me started on another ramble. That's a good final thought. <laughs> Either that or I'm just being lazy. I'll leave it to the listener to decide. That's fair. Cool. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this episode as well, hearing from our experiences and our recommendations on how to grow as a developer. Obviously, we weren't talking as much about specific programming skills, but the skills around those skills. I don't know if that counts as soft skills or just personal development, but these are things that I, I definitely think are very useful and beneficial. So hope you get to benefit from them as well. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Cool. At this point, we will move into picks. Picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the community. They don't have to be programming related. And I will start with Steve. I want to hear the joke today. I actually, I'm looking at my phone and I had them set and then something oh, no. reset. So why don't you go and all the... 
come back to All me. Right. Okay, coming back to you. Luke, what pick do you have for us today? Yeah, I mentioned that I learned with the Games Factory 2 when I was when I was starting out as a developer. And later on, I learned about this other program called Construct 2. And you can develop games in your browser using Construct 2. And the guy that created this, I think his name's like Ashley or something, he has basically dedicated himself nonstop to this project for the past, I don't know, it must have been like, it must have been almost 10 years now. And it is absolutely phenomenal what you can create with very little coding using that tool. So I, I would highly recommend this for kids. If you're a parent and you've got children and you want to teach them how to code, they can go a long way with something like Construct. Actually, it's Construct 3 now, I think, the one that you can open in your browser. So like really, really cool. You can create your own games and then you can um, share those games on the internet. They're all browser games. Then you can export it to different platforms like mobile as well. Yeah, I just think it's a fantastic way to learn how to code. Like there's a few other platforms out there for learning how to code that popular ones. For some reason, I never hear Construct 3 in that mix. And I think it is the best of all of them. So if you've got a child and you want to teach them the code or you want to build games yourself, um, check out Construct 3. It's really cool. I have to check this one out. This looks fun. Okay, I will go next and let Steve have the final word. So my pick today is also programming related. Recently, as in last month, StackBlitz announced their web containers, which allows you to run native Node applications in the browser in their StackBlitz development environment. So by default, they provide you with Node, GraphQL, and a Next.js using React templates. But you can just as easily, because it's just it's just Node, right? You have the CLI there. So you can just as easily spin up a Nuxt application. I'd be willing to bet you could spin up a Quasar application. You have access to the CLIs and you have access to NPM. So have fun, just start exploring what you can do with this because you have access to the to Node just right there in the browser. You're able to run everything. Um, there's been a number of podcasts and blog posts talking about it. So this might not be 100% new to you, but if it is, definitely check it out. I believe, Steve, did you talk with someone from StackBlitz? Yes, about a week ago, we talked with Eric Simons. So that I know uh, another podcast I had him on talk about this, but yeah, we talked to him. So it'll be out in two or three weeks, I'm imagining. Yeah. Not it's, sure it, when. It's definitely a really cool technology, something to keep your eye on. That is that is my pick today. I will now pass over to Steve. What is your pick? Oh, I'll go with a couple of the, the jokes that I know that I've heard that there's listeners blocking me this podcast just to hear these, but uh, uh, well, I'll try to live up to my previous high standards. This one reminds me of a movie, and I'll tell you in a bit. It says, so what's made of leather and sounds like a sneeze? A shoe. Right. So if anybody's ever <laughs> if if anybody's ever seen the classic Mel Brooks Robin Hood Men in Tights, you've got Dave Chappelle in there, and Dave Chappelle, his uh, his character's name is Achu, and his dad's name is Asneez. So you know, of course, every time he says his name, people shout, "Bless you!" Great little Mel Brooks humor there. And then uh, there's been a lot of superhero movies out, you know, Avengers Endgame, some of the Avengers movies, and Hulk being in there. So the question is, how come the Hulk doesn't lose his pants whenever he transforms, you know, because he gets so big? It's because the scientific experiment altered his genes. So they just sort of transform with him, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Love it. That one's actually pretty funny. I don't know if I can call that a dad joke. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it falls under the dad jokes, but puns, puns, you know, dumb puns. So that's just sort of the generic description of a dad joke. It all counts. It's all good. Awesome. Oh, that's well, great. 
thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we do more of them, not just this episode. You can find us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. And you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Diebel. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next week. Adios. Ciao. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.